great to be with you again after uh, a little few time, a few weeks away. And I do want to say thank you uh, to a few men who filled in the pulpit while I was gone. Pastor Ross, Pastor Blaine, Pastor Bryce, and Pastor Christian. While I may not have been here in person, I did watch and worship with you online. And I was just so thrilled and filled with the wisdom and knowledge and anointing that was on those men as they finished up our series. He said what? Can we show our appreciation? For them, it's a lot to be said that the lead pastor can um, step away for a few weeks to be revived and renewed. And this place doesn't just maintain, it moves forward. And God has blessed this church with an incredible and amazing staff. As you saw in the video and heard from Pastor Ross, we are starting a new sermon series this weekend called Unlikely Heroes. And it's an all-church series. And you may be wondering, well, what do you mean by that? What is an all-church series? I would love, and we are going to include in the regular rhythm of our church, at least once a year, probably in the fall, a time where all of us, from the smallest from the youngest ones in kids' ministry to middle school and student ministry and high school students and, of course, us as adults, where we all look at the same people, the same stories, the same text, and we do it all together. That's what I mean by an all-church series. And the goal of this is to spark conversation for families throughout the week since we're studying the same material. And I want to encourage you as families to lean into this, moms and dads in particular. This is an opportunity for you to be intentional at the dinner table, for you to be intentional in the car, for you to be intentional at home, to engage in conversation with your kids, for your students. If you don't have children, if your children are out of the house, it's an opportunity for growth groups, an opportunity for you to have coffee with friends and to be open. Parents, be vulnerable with your children. Ask questions and most importantly, Listen to your kids and listen to one another. We are going to conclude this series the very last weekend of September, which is the 24th and 25th, and what we are calling Next Gen Weekend. And what that means is this is going to be a time when for all four of those services on Saturday night and our three services on Sunday, we invite all of our kids and our students, except for the little babies in nursery, but we are going to gather together as a family. And let me say this to you. I love our kids' ministry. I love our student ministry. And I believe it is significant and important that we target and we are creative in age-specific ways in ministry. However, one of my concerns and has been as a pastor for years is that as we split generationally and as we split in age, that the downside of that is that we often miss those times where we can come together as a family and where kids can see mom and dad worship, where we can pray together and learn together. And I know it can be distracting, but I want us to find times together where we can come as a family. And that's what we're going to do at the end of September on Next Gen Weekend. And the theme or the big idea that is going to weave into every weekend of this series called Unlikely Heroes is this. You heard it earlier, but it's that God uses unlikely people at unlikely moments, to do unlikely things. Because the truth is, all of us love the story of an underdog. All of us like unlikely heroes. It's one of the reasons several years ago we loved Duck Hodges. He came out of nowhere. 
Okay, you ain't giving Duck much love now. But you were a few years ago. He was an unlikely hero. And all of us, and I think part of that is because we see ourselves as an unlikely hero. And one of my favorite underdog stories of all time is about a man named Desmond Ross. If you're not familiar, Desmond Ross is credited with saving numerous lives during one of the bloodiest battles in World War II. And Desmond did it without ever carrying a weapon. What became known as the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge on the island of Okinawa was a close combat fight between the Japanese and allied forces with heavy weaponry on both sides. Thousands of American and Japanese soldiers would be killed in this bloody battle that spanned over a three-month period. And the fact that Desmond Doss even survived the battle was remarkable, let alone that he saved so many lives, all without ever carrying a weapon. His story was so incredible that six years ago there was a movie made called Hacksaw Ridge. How many of you happened to see that? Now, Doss Desmond was a quiet, skinny kid from Lynchburg, Virginia. And he was a practicing Seventh-day Adventist. One of the strong stances, if you're not familiar with Seventh-day Adventists, is that they are conscientious objectors. Meaning, they don't believe in owning or possessing weapons of any sort or participating in wars. Yet despite this, Desmond Doss would enlist in the army as a combat medic because he believed in the cause of the war. But even doing so, he vowed not to kill or carry a weapon regardless of any circumstance. And it was in Okinawa in the spring of 1945, Doss's company faced an absolute grueling task. You see, they had to climb a steep, jagged cliff. There's a picture of it here. The, and this cliff was referred to as Hacksaw Ridge. And they had to climb to a plateau where thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers would be waiting for them. And on top of scaling this cliff, the gunfire the Americans faced would be unmatched. So much so that the Japanese referred to this battle as the rain of steel because of the sheer number of bullets that were flying through the air. So under a barrage, barrage of gunfire and explosion, Doss, who, remember, was unarmed and serving as a medic, he would crawl on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier throughout the battle. And when he would get there, he would drag the severely injured meds, men to the edge of the ridge. He would tie a rope around their bodies, and then he would lower them down Hacksaw Ridge to the medics that were waiting below. Veteran Carl Bentley, who was also at Hacksaw Ridge, said in a documentary, it was as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. Doss would eventually save 75 men in a 12-hour period. These were all the same soldiers, I might add, including his captain, who had previously shamed and ridiculed and made fun of him because of his stance not to use a weapon and kill. And now how many know they were thanking him? His captain, Jack Glover, said he was one of the bravest persons alive. And then to have him end up saving my, whole, my life was the irony of the whole thing. Shortly after this heroic moment, it was October 12, 1945, President Harry S. Truman presented the Congressional Medal of Honor to Desmond Thomas Doss for his heroism. Heroism Of the 16 million soldiers in World War II, 
there were only 431 Congressional Medals of Honor given out. And at the ceremony, President Truman would say of Doss, I am proud of you. I consider this a greater honor than even being president. Desmond Doss had experienced so much ridicule from his fellow soldiers for not carrying a firearm. And then he would be awarded our nation's highest honor without ever killing a single person, saving 75 lives. Today, there would be very few who would argue that Desmond Doss embodies everything you would describe as a hero. And yet this scrawny kid from Virginia didn't set out to be a hero. And no one in his company before the war, before they were sent over there, would have ever pointed him out and say, Desmond is going to do unlikely things. Desmond is going to be a hero. You see, he didn't look the part. He didn't fit the hero mold. And you see, while most of us have this mental picture of what a hero should be, a person with status or position or those who seem to have it all together, those who have an impressive stature, resume, education, the truth is the greatest heroes are often the most unlikely. And this is particularly true in God's kingdom. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will discover that God often uses the overlooked, the unqualified, the excluded, the forgotten, and the undrafted, not only to fulfill his purpose, but to do so in extraordinary ways. And here is the reality for all of us today. God often chooses the unlikely to do the unimaginable. Today, we're going to look at a truly unlikely hero in the Bible. And this hero's name is Ruth. Heavenly Father, thank you for just a powerful time of worship, a powerful time in your presence. Lord, you are here. And now your word, which is truth and has the power to change lives. I pray that as I share what you have put in my heart, that you would speak, that people would hear you, they wouldn't hear Alan. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our ears to hear and respond in your precious name. Amen. So Ruth is a book in the Old Testament. It's a very short book. It consists of only four chapters. And to give you some background, you may not recognize this, but Ruth is only one of two books in the Bible that is named after a woman. It is the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. And again, while it's only four chapters long, it's packed with powerful themes with the most significant reflecting the redemption story found in Jesus Christ. And Ruth, the, per the, the person that the book is named after, is also an unlikely hero in Israel's history. So we're not going to look at all four chapters. We don't have time for that today. We're only going to look at the first 17 verses in chapter 1. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can do that now. But let's look at Ruth 1, chapter 1. It begins by saying, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel. Let's stop there. Now, that time period should be pretty familiar to this family because we spent a whole series this summer going in Judges. And if you remember, the very last verse in the book of Judges said that in the time of Judges, everyone did what was 
right in their own eyes. So Ruth follows the book of Judges. So the verse right before this is that period, a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so in Israel at that time, there was a severe famine that came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and he went to live in the country of Moab, the Bible says, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Let's unpack that here for a little bit. So right away, at the beginning of Ruth, we see that this story doesn't have a great fairy tale story to begin with. It's not a pretty story to begin with. It took place, as we said, in the book of Judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Historically speaking, it's about between 1400 and 1100 BC, during one of the most evil times in Israel's history. And right away, we see that there's a Jewish family of four, mom, dad, and two sons, and they're from Bethlehem, Israel. And they move because of a famine. There's no food in the land of Israel. So they go to a land of Moab that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. Now, the dad's name is Elimelech, and the mom's name is Naomi, and they have two boys, Malon and Kilion. Now, for any moms and dads that are going to have a child, maybe you know you're going to have a son, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to name your son. I would like to strongly encourage you not to name them Malon or Kilion. One, because it's a weird sounding name. Two, and more importantly, the, those names in Hebrew mean sickly and dying. I mean, you might as well name your son monkeypox and COVID. <laughs> That's pretty much what Elimelech and Naomi did. Now, here's the other irony. Where was, that was pretty good. Where was this family from in Israel? What town? Bethlehem. Do any of you know what does Bethlehem stand for in Hebrew? House of bread. Now think about this. They are leaving a city called house of bread because there was no bread in the land. So they're moving to Moab. This is the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this family of four leaves. Now where does Elimelech, the dad, take his family? He takes them to a land called Moab. You may um, know of the Moabites or have heard of the Moabites. They are an evil enemy of the Israelites. Okay, the Israelites and the Moabites did not get along. It would be like leaving Pittsburgh and moving to Baltimore. Sorry, BJ. Okay, that's, I mean, but worse. So they're mighty enemies here. So again, there's irony here that they're leaving Israel, a place called House of Bread, this family of four, and they're moving to the Moabites. So let's continue his story in verse 3. Then Elimelech dies, and Naomi was left with her two sons. So the dad dies, and Naomi becomes a widow with her two sons. But then the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. About 10 years later... Both Malon and Kilian died, and this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So we haven't even gotten past verse 3, and more tragedy strikes this family. The dad, Elimelech, dies. And after he dies, Naomi, with her two boys, what do they do? 
they marry enemy women. They, now in Jewish tradition, this doesn't seem like much to us, but a Jewish boy never would have married a non-Israelite woman. And it's nothing against Orpah or Ruth. It just would not have happened. And it shouldn't have happened according to the Bible, to the Torah, which they lived and obeyed. But here instead, they marry enemy women. They marry Moabites. And then 10 years later, we discover that the boys die. And so now this family is hit with suffering, hit with death, hit with tragedy. You have a mom, Naomi, who's a widow. And now her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, who are Moabites, they are widows. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Naomi? She's living in a foreign land and she has two foreign daughters-in-law. She's grieving. Here we're going to read the rest of the story for today. Verse 6, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. The famine is over in Israel. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living. Again, that's in Moab. And they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way... The mom, Naomi, who again, who's also a widow, says to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke and wept, broke down and wept. And then the daughters-in-law respond to Naomi, no, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replies, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? We'll talk about what she means by that in a moment. No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth um, clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. So Naomi hears in Moab that the famine is over. And they begin this journey back to Israel. And along the way, the reality hits Naomi. And she tells Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, look, you don't need to come with me. You're walking into enemy territory. Now, Jewish tradition would have been that if there were another brother, that these young girls would have married someone else in the family. But obviously there wasn't. And that's why Naomi is saying, if I, even if I had sons, you're not going to wait 15, 16 years for them to get older, go back to your mother's house. Go back to Moab. You can marry whoever you want. And Naomi is pretty much saying, you've suffered enough by being part of my family. Go back home. So the one daughter-in-law, Orpah, is like, yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm out. But Ruth, but Ruth responds differently. And here is where the unlikely hero arises. She says, to Naomi, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. 
and there I will be buried. And then she takes it a step further. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Ruth, a young widow herself, a Moabite, a foreigner, an enemy, not a worshiper of Yahweh, Jehovah. She demonstrates unimaginable devotion and loyalty to her in her commitment to Naomi. She says, I don't care how much our family has suffered. I don't care how much, Naomi, you have suffered. How much we may suffer in returning to Israel. Your people are now my people. Your family is now my family. Your God will be my God. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She's an enemy of Israel. She's going back into enemy territory. She lived and believed very differently than God's people, the Israelites. She ate different things. She worshiped a different way. The most easy and comfortable thing for her to do was to go back with Orpah. And yet in the midst of this, she turns away from all that she's known, all that's familiar, all that's comfortable. And she stays by her mother-in-law's side, Naomi. What an amazing and awesome demonstration of loyalty and love. Now, there is a word for this in the Hebrew language. There's a concept of this in Jewish tradition. It is not a word that we have in the English language. And to teach you that word this morning, that word is chesed. Say chesed. Now, some of you didn't get it. You got to put a little chesed. Okay, we, again, we don't have a word for that in the English language. But if you were trying to construct it or explain it, chesed means a loyal love. So how does this demonstration of loyal love make Ruth an unlikely hero? This chesed, I often, I, I did a wedding on Friday. Let me pause here for a second. I did, I did a wedding on Friday. And oftentimes when I'm marrying a couple, I will talk about chesed. Because this loyal love is really talking about covenant. And it's really the same, we're going to find out later, the same type of love that Jesus shows to us. See, oftentimes in, in weddings or in marriages, we think in terms of commitments or contracts. That our love or our commitment to one another is predicated upon the performance of the other person. But how many know and understand in marriage, if your marriage is based or predicated on the performance of the other person, they're going to let you down. But in God, in the Bible, and this is so the reason why we look at marriage as a covenant, it's this said it is a loyal love. It's not predicated upon what you do. It's predicated on a covenant that God is the third party in that marriage. And that is what Ruth demonstrates. So what does this all have to do with us today? And how does it make Ruth an unlikely hero in Israel's history? Well, first of all, you need to read the rest of the story. Now, some of you who are a little bit older, you may not think I'm familiar with who Paul Harvey is. But how many of you know who Paul Harvey is? I know Pastor Blaine does. So I remember riding in the car with my dad growing up. My dad always listened to talk radio. And one of the shows he would listen to is Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey, just say this with me if you know where I'm going. Paul Harvey would always say, and now the rest of the story. I'm not going to give you the whole rest of the story today. You need to read the rest of Ruth. And I encourage you to do that either today or later this week. But what started out with Ruth and Naomi, what started out as tragedy ends in blessing. And what began with ashes, God turns into beauty. And he works it together for good 
including that of Ruth. You see, Ruth, at the end of the story, ends up marrying an Israelite man named Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth have a son. And that son's name is Obed. And if we fast forward to the end of Ruth, we see that Boaz, Ruth's husband, was the father of Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And yes, that's King David. So we see Ruth, this foreigner and one-time enemy of Israel, becomes the grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history. No one would have imagined that. No Israelite would have picked a Moabite to be the greatest, to be the grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history. But it gets even better. If you fast forward again to the New Testament, the first few verses, I think it's within the first five or six verses of the New Testament. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, you see the lineage of Jesus Christ. And guess what? If you go there, you read that Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. The very lineage, it's written and captured in history and in our Bible today. The family line of the one who would redeem all of humanity includes Ruth. Includes a Moabite woman. Includes an immigrant who was an enemy of Israel. And Ruth's story reminds all of us today that God often chooses the unlikely to do the unimaginable. So today you may feel like a foreigner. You may be watching online and you feel like an outsider. That's why you're watching online. You may feel like you are forgotten. You may feel that you have been left behind. You may in reality be a widow. You may in reality be facing incredible hardship or death or suffering. You may be poor. You may be experiencing great loss. You may be a literal immigrant living in a foreign land. You may believe that you are unqualified. You may believe that you are unworthy. Or you may believe that you are the underdog. And God would want you to know today and not leave here without the understanding that God often uses the unlikely to achieve the unimaginable. And it would be a mistake if we just stopped there and we all left feeling good about ourselves and thinking that we could be the hero of the story. It would be a grave mistake. And here's why. As Jesus followers, we are to see the unlikely hero in those around us. Jesus has not called us to make ourselves the hero of the story. Jesus has called us to see what is possible, to see the potential, to see the heroes in those around us. The Apostle Paul writes about this in his second letter. I want to end with this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says to the Corinth church, and this is to us as well, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He, speaking of Jesus, died for everyone. Say everyone. everyone. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus died for the person who has different political beliefs than you. 
Jesus died for the people who vote differently than you. Jesus died for the people that look different than you. Jesus died for the people who make your blood boil when you log on to Facebook or Insta or Twitter. Jesus died for them. Jesus died for the people in your family, for your people in your neighborhood, for the people at work that drive you crazy. Jesus died, Paul says, for everyone so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves, will no longer make themselves the center or the hero of the story. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. And then listen to this statement by Paul, knowing that, that Jesus died for everyone and that we're not to make ourselves the center of the story. Paul says, so we have stopped. Doesn't say we should stop. Doesn't say we're trying to stop. Paul says we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Between you and God in this moment, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, ask yourself, how many times this week, how many times over the weekend, how many times today have you evaluated someone from a human point of view? How many times have you looked at someone? How many times have you made a judgment from a human point of view looking through your social media feed? How many times has someone driven by you? How many times on the way of church today when you saw someone on the street, you made a judgment by a human point of view? How many relationships are broken because judgments are made on a human point of view? And we're missing the point today if we think we are the unlikely hero in Jesus' story. Yes, God uses the unlikely to imaginable things, and we're all included of that. But as Jesus followers, he has called us to see the unlikely heroes and those around us. Jesus looked at probably a young teenager named Matthew. And when most people saw a tax collector who the Israelites hated, who was faithful to the government. (laughs) Jesus said, Matthew, you're gonna be an unlikely hero. He looked at a couple fishermen who were uneducated and no one really thought much about. And he said, you come, you guys, you're gonna be unlikely heroes and you're gonna do unimaginable things. There was a man named Saul in the New Testament who was persecuting, arresting and killing Christians. Paul stood and witnessed the first martyr in the Bible when they stoned Stephen. The Bible says that the Pharisees threw their cloaks at the feet of Paul, and he watched it and affirmed the death of Stephen. Jesus saw an unlikely hero in a man named Saul. He knocked him off his horse. He said, Saul, I'm changing your name to Paul, and you're going to do unimaginable things. And we must have the eyes of Jesus to see the unlikely heroes in others. So Heavenly Father, I first pray for those who may be here today and maybe they are facing incredible suffering like Naomi and Ruth. Whether it be literal death, literal hunger or spiritual hunger, whether it be being a foreigner or an immigrant, whether it be emotional. I pray that they would leave with their head held high, encouraged 
knowing that your story throughout history is that you call unlikely people to do unimaginable things. And it's not our education. It's not our gifts. It's not how we look that qualifies us. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, I pray that every one of us, Lord, would see the unlikely heroes and those around us. I pray that we would be obedient to your word as the letter that James wrote that says that we would be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. Give us your eyes to see others as you do. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. If you would take your communion cup, as Pastor Ross said, it can be a little tricky. If you don't have one, that's okay. Um, the ushers are coming along the side aisle. If you don't have one, simply raise your hand and they will make sure that you get one and I will give you plenty of time to make sure. We won't partake until everybody has one. But if you want to be, if you have it, go ahead. There's a little film layer at the top for a wafer. And then we'll do the cup in a little bit. While we're making sure that everybody has one, let me just say this to you today. If, you, if you're here and maybe you're a member of another church, you're visiting from out of town, or maybe it's your first time here today, we don't have a corner, when I say we, ACAC, uh, or, a, or a market on God's table. You don't need to be a member of this church or a regular attender to participate in communion. You just need to be part of the family of God, and we welcome you here today. So we're going to partake of communion together. Does everybody have one? Just want to make sure in the balcony. Okay. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As you do, would you take that wafer and place it in your hand? On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you break and partake? In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. A new covenant, a new agreement, Paul says, confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink, before you drink. Jesus said, my blood is, when he said it's a new covenant, a new commitment, Jesus was speaking of Chesed. And what that means for you and I is that our relationship with Christ is not predicated upon us never making a mistake. Jesus' grace, his love, his mercy goes beyond what we ever could imagine because Jesus died for all. He shows, Jesus shows loyal love to us. And we give thanks to God today. Remember that as you partake of the cup.
So as we leave today, let me just say a blessing over you. Be encouraged. No one should leave this place. If you're watching, if you're still with us, if you feel overlooked, undrafted, God uses unlikely people to do unimaginable things. And he has a plan for your life. But more importantly, there are unlikely heroes around all of us. And today as you leave and this week, open your eyes. See the unlikely heroes that are around you as we follow Jesus together. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.